Welcome to Fraud Busting. I'm Tracy Brown, the Fraud Busting Body Language Expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion dollar business deals. It's time to dive in so you can beat the fraudsters at their own game and build your bottom line. Retired economic crimes FBI agent Jerry Williams visits fraud busting. She'll tell us all about the behind the scenes stories of her work on fraud cases, including the Ponzi scheme she helped bust that landed her on the CNBC TV show, American Greed. She'll debunk myths about the FBI and tell us about her podcast where she gets the real behind the scenes story on FBI cases. And she'll also talk about all the books she's written. She is just a doll. You're gonna enjoy her. You don't wanna miss this one. Jerry, thank you so much for coming on Fraud Busting. I am so thrilled that that you're here. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, I fraud, talking about fraud is one of my favorite things to do. So I'm excited to be here. Well, you and you talk a lot about it because uh, not only talk, but write. Um, and so I don't want to um, mess up your intro. So why don't you tell us exactly what you do and we'll go from there. Well, I actually have a tagline. I say that I'm Jerry Williams and that I am on a mission to show people who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast case reviews with former colleagues. Oh, that's a mouthful. So, so really, you do it all. Really, you do it all. Now, you're a retired FBI and you worked mostly in economic crimes, like financial crimes. And so let's start, let's just start from the beginning. How, how'd you end up um, uh, with the FBI? Uh, it was a fluke. <laughs> really? There's so many, yeah, when I interview uh, the different retired agents, they, I always ask them why and when you join the FBI. And so many of them say that they wanted to be FBI agents since they were little kids. Mm -hmm. And that was not the case for me. I never thought about being an FBI agent. And, you know, even in, as a young adult, I only really thought about FBI agents as being white males. And oh. so I didn't see myself in that role. This is back in the early 1980s. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm old, you know. So, um, <laughs> you, know you don't look old, so that's okay. So I was working as a juvenile probation officer and I saw this newsletter because uh, again, in, in the 80s, there's a lot of women networking. Uh -huh. And it said that the FBI was looking, actively looking for more women and more minorities to join, uh, to join the FBI. And at the time, you know, I looked at myself and I said, more women, check, more minorities, check. And so I thought, uh, you know what, uh, I'll call and, you know, see what they have to say. And the agent who answered that phone really recruited me. You know, when he heard about my background and what I was doing, he thought that I would make the, the ideal candidate. And he really wouldn't let me off that phone until he made sure that, you know, I was interested and that when he sent out the application, which at the time was like that thick, that I would complete it. And so he really, really you know, took the time to make sure that I knew that this was a good opportunity for me. And so I applied and it was like a whirlwind. It usually takes up to a year to get in. Oh. And six months later, I was walking into the FBI Academy saying to myself, 
what have I done? Oh my goodness. Wow. So what's, can you talk about what the Academy's like? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's still uh, the same as it was back then, but instead of 16 weeks, it's 21 weeks mm-hmm. of training. And uh, it entails, you know, the academics learning how to investigate, you know, what legally can you do? How do you do an arrest warrant? You know, the types of different, uh, the, the different types of investigations that the FBI uh, you know, handles the violations. So you have the academic and then you have the physical fitness and that's all the running and the push-ups and the pull-ups and the agility runs and all of that. Just trying to make sure that you are in the best uh, condition that you've ever been in. And that was kind of a breeze for me. I've always been kind of a non-sports playing athlete. Okay. Okay. (laughs) At the time I was distance running and, and that's a whole different story about me running the Marine Corps marathon while I was at the training academy, 26.2 miles while I was at the training academy. So uh... Um, that's a lot. Marathons are, it's something I thought about doing because, you know, I have a background in cycling and I thought when I retired, I'm like, maybe I'll run a marathon. And I was like, maybe I won't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've actually done it twice. I did the California International too. So, Um, but that was a long, long time ago. And (laughs) My my old knees won't even let me run, you know, around the block anymore. So I, oh, I'm, a, I'm a big power walker now. So okay, have to do. Good. Um, okay. And then so, the third part, I forgot the third part oh, of yeah, yeah. Um, the academy. Of course, is the firearms. You know, learning how to to shoot a gun. When I went through, it was a revolver, uh, the rifle and the shotgun, and now of course it's the semi-automatic pistol and the rifle, they really don't do much with the shotgun anymore, but uh, those are the three aspects of training at the academy. Wow, and then where'd you end up getting uh, stationed? All right, so for the first six months, I went back to the office where I was recruited. Uh-huh. So I really got to know that recruiter who had talked me into all yeah, of that. Uh-huh. And that was Norfolk, Virginia. Okay. Uh, I was living in the Virginia area at the time. So I went back there for six months to, because at the time you had to establish yourself as a government employee so that they could transfer you. Mm-hmm. And then transfer me, they did. <laughs> they sent me to Sacramento, California. Yay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I was only there for about a year and a half. And then they sent me to Philadelphia and I spent the majority, the rest of my career, the 24 out of 26 years uh, in the Philadelphia area. Oh, wow. So then did you just wake up one day and say, you know what, financial crimes, that's where I'm going to shine. Or how did you end up there they put me there i mean oh. uh, a, a a big motto of the bureau is the needs of the bureau mm-hmm. and uh, so when you first come in unless you have some special special skill you're basically a body and they put you where they want you to put so initially uh in sacramento uh, and and norfolk i got to do a whole bunch of fun things like bank robberies and things like that but when i got to sacramento they put me on a government fraud squad now, I wasn't all that excited about it. Never that year and a half I worked it. I really didn't know what I was doing. I really didn't really love it. But when I got to Philly, when I got to an economic crime squad, there's a big difference. Uh, of course, in the government fraud, you know, your victim is the government. Mm-hmm. But in economic crime and economic fraud, your victims are real people. Mm-hmm. And so you really get to feel 
uh, as you're working the case that you're doing something that is going to have uh, you know, a big effect on somebody personally. You get to talk to the victim. You get to understand what the victim's going through. You know, even if it's a, a business, it's still more of a personal level. And once I started working that type of fraud, I grew to love it. Absolutely, just found it fascinating. And as much as I enjoyed talking to the victims, I really enjoyed, you know, meeting with the subjects and and talking to them too. You know? Oh my gosh! Okay, so you smile the biggest on meeting the subjects, and you know I'm a body language expert, so that's where we got to dig in. So, um, what's the craziest uh, case you worked on, or maybe the craziest story someone told you? Um, let's dig into that. Uh, when you get to crazy. Uh, or unbelievable just something where you're like you tried that what on <laughs> earth are you thinking <laughs> well remember for most of the cases by the time i got them they had been successful at least to a point yeah i mean that's why it got to the fbi level because the exposure or the dollar amount of the fraud you know reached our threshold so most of the time it wasn't like cray cray because it had been successful uh -huh. and uh, it had worked. I guess the, 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 the strangest one would be the one that I ended up on American Greed, which for you know, a, an, an investigator who works fraud, being, you know, having your case on American Greed is like reaching the, you know, the, the pinnacle. You know? Well, I wanted to talk to you about that. I'm glad you brought it up. So tell, tell us all about that. Like, what was the case? How, how did they contact you? Like, I want to know all the Hollywood stuff too. <laughs> well, you know, I was in the, still working for the FBI at the time. And so I think uh, American Greed must look at different cases that they see in the news. Uh -huh. And then they find out, you know, what agents is working them and reach out to that agency and then ask permission to to interview the investigators and to to get more information about the case and so that's what happened with me my case was the foundation for new era philanthropy i have to remember it that way new uh, era philanthropy yes okay. and the head of the group was john bennett and he just was well loved in the charity and donation uh, funding uh, industry, especially when it came to um, Christian organizations, whether okay. they were schools or churches. You know, he helped them at a time when the government funding was being pulled away, learn how to go out into the community and talk to different people and get them to donate to, you know, your, your nonprofit. And so, and that's what he did. And he did an excellent job. And he, he held uh, seminars and, and, and uh, you know, community uh, educational programs to, to teach these nonprofit organizations how to raise money. And then something happened. <laughs> it always does. What happened? Yeah. Well, he, he just got into some financial trouble, some mm -hmm. personal financial trouble. And he started to, he figured his best way to get out of it, he had been kiting bank accounts, uh -huh. you know, moving money from one money, one account to another in order to, you know, um, manipulate the, the, the flow of, of the cash. And he got caught, the bank caught him. And so he needed to replenish those accounts and he needed to do it immediately. Uh -huh. And so what he did is he asked some of the people that he had gotten to know who were philanthropists and, and, and donors, that he told him that he was going to start up his own uh, funding, 
you know, that he had met some, and this is going to be unbelievable, but he had met some anonymous donors, very rich people throughout the world who were just way too busy to deal with, you know, how to, who, who to fund and who not to give money to. And so they were going to put him in trust of this foundation. Mm. And in order to make sure that there were people that were deserving of his, of their funding, they wanted them to take their funding. He would hold on to it for six months, which grew to a year, which grew to a year and a half. Mm. And um, then they would match it. You know, whether it's $500,000 or a million dollars, if that organization put the money with him so that they could prove that they didn't need it for capital investment, that this mm -hmm. was really just, you know, funding uh, for, for special projects, the anonymous donor would match it. So he started out slow. I mean, he really did do it out of desperation. That's a good story, though. Like, it yeah. sounds almost yeah. legit, you know? Yes. And he did it out of desperation just to get himself out of this financial trouble. But once it started happening, other people heard about it and they also wanted to have their donations matched by these anonymous donors. Uh -huh. And I guess people just loved the concept and, and they trusted him. And so next thing he knows, he's bringing in all this money to the tune of $450 million dollars oh my gosh and as you know and you know everybody who deals with fraud there is no ponzi scheme that at some point you know it's going to collapse mm, you know no, there's absolutely. not enough money in the world to maintain a ponzi scheme and mm -hmm. so uh it collapsed you know and he actually had borrowed some money from uh one of the investment fr uh, firms that he was dealing with in order to try to keep the uh, Ponzi scheme going mm -hmm. and they did a margin call and he didn't have any money right. uh, and he had to declare bankruptcy. And at that time, when the SEC went in when he was declaring bankruptcy, they looked around and they said, you know what? We think this might've been a Ponzi scheme. And uh, that's when uh, I got called and uh, it was an unbelievable case. Unbelievable case. So, so what do you do? So your phone rings in your office and and like what happens next i mean because you know when we talk about like yesterday i just spoke for the acfe and and you know they're all internal auditors and accountants ultimately some are private investigators like where where do you fit in that because really it's a lot of paperwork and a lot of math like it's not super exciting probably in the middle of it or is it like where do the kicks come from like what what really happens well you know, I gave you the shortcut version, but really <laughs> the FBI didn't know anything about this until they read it on the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Mm. And there was like the front page headline on top of the fold, you know, of the, of the hard copy newspaper was that this foundation had declared bankruptcy. And there was like a line or two in there that it was a possibility of it being a bankrupt uh, bank. Um, I mean, being a, a Ponzi scheme. Mm -hmm. So we weren't directly contacted by the SAC. When uh -huh. we saw that, you know, I, I saw the newspaper and of course, you know, it's very competitive. People don't know this, but it can be very competitive in the FBI and, and you're assigned cases, but you also bring in cases yourself through your own contacts and, uh -huh. and 
people that you know. So I was lucky because I, saw, I, I read the paper every morning. So right. I saw this and I ran into the supervisor's office and said, look, <laughs> you know, can, can I look into this? Can, can I, can I see what's going on? Uh-huh. You know, this, this might be, you know, it says here, it's potentially a Ponzi scheme. I'd, I'd love to look into this. And he said, sure, go ahead. Uh-huh. So I went over to the United States attorney's office and met with one of the attorneys there. And then we pulled in the SEC and, and then just talked about it more and more. Um, eventually, uh, two other agents were brought onto the case. Very early on, uh, one of the agents in our office who was a CPA, um, Brian Cosgriff came into the case and then somebody else on my squad, another female agent on my squad, Loretta Hart. So we three, it was a big enough case that we three worked it together and divided it up into sections for us to concentrate on. Uh, it, it just, uh, it was a fabulous case because, you know, throughout the, the case, you know, my, my main role was to do the victims, you know, to uh-huh. talk to the victim interview, uh, the, the, the victims and interview them. And probably one of the hardest part of my job was convincing them that they had been defrauded, that this was not, you know, a true foundation. And uh-huh. that there were no anonymous donors. And that's how difficult it can be at times to work fraud. It's, you know, it's, it's, a it's, it's, an well, yeah, no one, no case. one wants to believe they've been taken. No, no. Now, yeah, and that's why, and I'm sure you've meant, you've talked about this before. That's why, you know, the amount of fraud that exists, there really is no true number because it's assumed right. that the majority of people who've been defrauded never even report it. They oh, just right. talk themselves up as having done something stupid. You know, it's their fault. They're embarrassed. They don't want their family to know about it. They certainly don't want their neighbors or business partners to know about it. And they just let it go. Um, it's, it's the bigger, bigger ones where you can't just let it go that, uh, that show up. But uh, yeah, that there were p- people that I was interviewing um, businessmen who were known throughout the Philadelphia area as being so savvy and smart mm-hmm. who were crying, you know, as oh. I interviewed them, as I talked with them because they were humiliated because not only had they put money into the Ponzi scheme, but they had gotten so many of their friends and business associates, business associates and other nonprofit organizations who were looking for money to, you know, to, to build their organizations. He had gotten, they, many of these men, mostly men, had gotten so many people into it and they were just humiliated. Oh yeah, well that that's a kind of a telltale of a lot of Ponzi schemes, or you know, and a lot of them turn out as Ponzi schemes, you know, because your your friends get you into yeah. it, and you know, it's a limited opportunity, Jerry. Yeah. It's very limited. Do it now. Don't tell anybody. You yeah, know? yeah. I, I I can bring you into this deal, and that's exactly how it was. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you know, many of the people who were defrauded were in the Christian community, mm-hmm. you know, because the word buzzed through and, you know, was, uh, you know, the secret thing, this, this great possibility, you know, was, was put out through that community, again, schools and churches and organizations like that. But then as the Ponzi scheme, as he needed more and more money, of course, he opened it up. <laughs> oh, yeah. More, you know, uh, nonprofits and, you know, I, I actually, that this was the second crime novel I wrote. I oh. wrote about this case. 
and I called it greedy givers. Oh yeah. Huh? Yeah. Because, and this is always hard to talk about because it sounds like victim blaming, mm -hmm. but in many of these frauds, the reason that the person was the, the victim is, is embarrassed is because they were, they know, they know that they were trying to make uh, money in a unconventional get rich quick kind of scheme. And a lot of it has to do with, I hate to use the word, but greed yeah. on, on both parts. And so uh, that's why I love the title of the book, Greedy Givers, because they were people who were giving, they weren't greedy in the sense of trying to enrich themselves. They were donating, hoping to get the money matched to give it to another organization. But they certainly were, you know, had dollar signs in their eyes. Oh yeah. As they looked at this special opportunity that was going to make them look even better to the organizations that they had been supporting. Wow. So, so you do your interviews. I mean, uh, they, uh, the guy went to jail, right? Yeah, um, 25 years. Oh boy. Now tell me this. When, oh no, when, no, sorry. No, that's not right. He oh, got 12 years. 12. He got 12. Okay. Yeah. He got, I was mixing it up with somebody else, but I, <laughs> yeah, he got 12 years. Yeah. So, so when you go in the case, cause I know a lot of what you do is debunking myths of the FBI. And so what I see in my mind is, uh, like, um, a wolf of Wall Street kind of like FBI goes in, you know, guns are out and everybody's surprised. And um, all of a sudden you take all the computers and like that kind of thing. Like, is that really what happens or tell us about that? Yeah. And in this case, uh, instead of going in and taking all the paperwork and the file cabinets because they were in bankruptcy, we were able to work with the bankruptcy court and the SEC, and we just took over his offices. Uh -huh. And so we would go there to work, oh. you know, to log in everything instead of having to, you know, pack everything up and then try to remember, okay, what's in box one BC and what room uh -huh. did it come from? We had everything right where it was still labeled, still um, categorized, but we were able to work with those documents right in his office space, very similar to what they did in the Madoff investigation, oh, where right. most of that paper, those, that paperwork was uh, left in the offices for the different agencies to work on. And, and, and so that's what we did. So it, yeah, it's amazing because we're looking for, of course, the smoking gun in this particular case is the fact that we're trying to prove a negative. We know that there are no anonymous donors, but we've got to be able to prove in some way that they don't exist. And wow. so we were, yeah, so we were looking for any type of listing of anonymous donors, then we could go talk to those people to see sure. if they were anonymous donors. We were looking, of course, at the bank accounts to see where the money was coming from when it was matched. And of course we mm -hmm. found that was very easy. We found out that the money that was being matched was coming from the same bank account where the people actually made the deposits. Mm -hmm. um, there, were, there was no other external source of money to match with those funds. And uh, of course we were looking for you know, any type of phone records of conversations that he may have had with anonymous donors and things like that. So, you know, it, it was a fascinating case. I loved working on that case. And 
like I said, that's why I ended up uh, uh, writing a book to try to, in my mind, try to figure out why he did it. Uh-huh. You know, why was this man who had done, he had ended, he had started his career as a uh, drug counselor, oh. you know, counseling, uh, you know, drug addicts and working in, uh, in, in you know, in, in drug um, rehab centers. Sure. And then as he got good at raising money for his own uh, center, and, you know, then he expanded out and started helping other people raise money. So he was doing good work. I mean, he was a, you know, church going, uh, you know, person that had friends in, you know, high communities, you know, in, in all religions. And then because of this financial problem that he got himself into, it just morphed into this Ponzi scheme that just got out of control. And he, talking about crazy, <laughs> uh, I, I guess that's not a politically correct word, so I shouldn't be using it. Well, we're talking, not always politically correct here. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, talking, but his excuse at the end was that he had had a car accident that had created an issue with his brain. So he blamed his brain and said that he really thought that the anonymous donors were real. That and how far did that get him? episodes believe, and believe that they were real. Of course, one of the fun things during the, and we didn't have a trial because he did plead, but he didn't plead guilty. He mm -hmm. plead, um, oh God, what's the word? Nola Katendra, you know, that he, he's, he's guilty, but doesn't admit to anything. Okay. And uh, so we did end up having a week long uh, sentencing. <laughs> and so uh, during the sentencing, I remember uh, testifying. Did I testify or was that somebody? I, I can't remember who, <laughs> but we, because we had the three of us, um, yeah. but we were talking about the fact that we had found his calendars where the meetings with the anonymous donors were scheduled as far as his administrative staff were concerned. Mm -hmm. And the point was made that, you know, you usually don't schedule out your psychotic episodes. Right, oh my gosh, no. oh my gosh, that is crazy. That is crazy and it's not politically correct. But so, okay, so uh, um, I know a lot of what you do is debunking the myths of the FBI and, and we've brought up a couple of them and I, you have a whole book on that as well, don't you? Yes, it's called FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a Manual for Armchair Detectives. Oh, wow. Because um, that's kind of what I am. Well, I'm not really an armchair detective, but I, I, uh, I do a lot of video review. <laughs> so um, what, uh, what's the number one myth? Well, the number one myth, I think, is that the FBI doesn't play well with others. I mean, that's, you see that myth in every movie, you know, where the FBI agent comes in and, you know, FBI, you know, we're, we'll take it from here. And uh, yeah, yeah. Of, you know, that is just, oh, it is so bad. It is so untrue. I mean, the FBI couldn't do our job without our ability to work with our law enforcement partners. And every city uh, and, and you know, all around the country, there are police officers and state troopers and other federal agencies working directly with the FBI, sitting in the FBI's office space, being paid overtime by the FBI on task forces because we want to be able to utilize their skills and resources and have them able to utilize our skills and resources. 
Uh, we know those people in the community, the law enforcement agencies in the community, and they would laugh us out of the room or the crime scene if we try to come in and take over. Ah. Uh, everybody, yeah, everybody has their jurisdictions. And so, you know, at the end, there may be a decision made at the higher level as to how this case is going to uh, be prosecuted. Will it be prosecuted by the state? Will it be, be, uh, be prosecuted federally? But, you know, we still are working many of those investigations together, especially when it comes to, to violent crime cases. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. So since we're talking about myths, I'm going to share one from my angle. And, and I know you've done probably a lot more interrogations, been involved in a lot more interviews than I have, because, um, you know, I'm a body language expert. And um, what what you see on the movies is the cops, you know, they start tipping over the tables and they shine the light right in your eyes. And then they expect someone to confess, right? And tell their deepest, darkest secrets. Like, there is no worse way <laughs> to, to get wow. someone to Absolutely. talk than that. And it's uh, like, you got to make them as comfortable as you, as you can. Yeah, that is definitely one of the myths. I have a whole chapter on the myth of, you know, the FBI uses intimidation and coercion in order to you know, get people to cooperate. What a myth. And oh, yeah. it's actually, work. yeah, it's actually the opposite. You know, we arrest somebody and, you know, we're going to ask them if they want coffee. Have you eaten yet? You know, well, yeah, well, I get you a meal, you know, <laughs> you know where that came from. And I'm sure you do is I believe his name was Hans Scharf in World War Two. And he had some American POWs and he, um, wanted to get him to talk and his wife was in there baking uh like something some kind of pastry and he ends up giving the pastries to the pow's and they started talking like it and and that's how that whole thing got um started is like wait a minute you should be nice to people yeah. <laughs> and, absolutely yeah for, for another reason too, first of all, you want them to cooperate. You want them to feel comfortable. You want them to feel heard. You want to develop that rapport. You know, I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. I'm, <laughs> I'm here, here to help. To help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've heard that line. Oh yeah. But, but the other thing is once you get that information, every FBI agent is responsible for maintaining informants, cooperating witnesses, mm -hmm. human intelligence sources. And so if once you get them to cooperate on that particular case, if you're nice to them and develop a report, maybe you can get them to cooperate on oh. other cases and tell you other things. And so, yeah, there's no way that the most scariest, meanest, nastiest criminal is going to spill his guts or spill her guts about a, 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 you know, a crime that they've committed just because you yelled at them and pointed them in the face, you know, or threatened them, you know? Yeah. Give them something they want, you know? Don't threaten to take away something, you know, or put them in jail. Oh you know? yeah, that, that, that never works. Now, let's, let's talk quickly about, um, because I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours. Um, uh, read technique. Um, did you ever get trained in that at all? What's it called? Read. It's it's an interrogation technique, and it has some questionable. Um, no, I've I've never heard about the read technique. Well, see, I've never been trained in it. I have bits and pieces of it, and I thought you might have some intel. But basically. It gives you some techniques where you can get to almost too chummy with with your subject and um, end up with a lot of false confessions. So mm -hmm. um, 
sounds like you weren't working with that because I because I, I think the I think the financial criminals are a little bit smarter. Oh yeah. Than, like like they're super sharp people like to be able to figure this out. Oh, they are sure. They are absolutely convinced that they're the smartest person in the room. Oh yeah. And that, <laughs> and, you know, when I walked in, it's like uh, she's an agent. You know, I figured, <laughs> I figured, oh well, then I don't have anything to worry about. And then me being very, you know, kind and gentle. And a lot of times people say, I didn't notice I was doing this, but I'm very maternal. You know, mm -hmm. I have three kids and, uh, you know, just caring about them. And next thing I know, they're talking to me. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That, well, that, that, I mean, that's the mark of someone who gets it. So, and now um, let's talk about what else you get, because you, um, you have a podcast Yes. which is fantastic. And it's, uh, is it retired FBI case file review? Is that what it's called? It's FBI oh. retired case file review. Okay. All right. Got it. And so here's why I like it so much. And we need to talk about how you're doing this because I think it reveals your, um, your personality a little bit and, and your, uh, uh, methodology, like, like you seem like super detail oriented and, uh, and, and you go through these cases in a way where you feel like, as a listener, uh, you know everything about the case by the time the interview is over and, and there's no stone left unturned, right? So can you talk about um, like some of your mo more interesting cases on that, some of your more interesting guests, or, or maybe even uh, some of the interviewing skills that you use to get the information out in a way that's not dry? and uh, a little more intriguing than maybe in, in detail than, than maybe like a regular true crime podcast. Yeah, definitely. Well, first of all, I learn as much as I can about the case before my guests come. Not because I'm going to ask a lot of questions. If you've noticed, and anybody listens to my podcast, I don't say much. If I can get my guests to to keep rolling and do almost a, a case presentation, mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, then that's my goal. I mean, I'm only going to interrupt to clarify something or to uh, to to have them expand on something that I think the audience may need to know about. But otherwise, my guests can go on for five, ten minutes before I say anything. Oh yeah. But I'd like to know the case anyway because I want to know if I'm missing anything or they're skipping anything that I can bring to their attention. Another thing that I do, and as a <laughs> behavioralist, you'll be interested in this, is I don't use the camera. Like we're talking uh, yeah. now and we're you know doing a podcast, it's gonna be video and it's gonna be audio, but I turn the camera off. I think out of, I've done 231 episodes yeah i mean and, there's a lot there's any anything you want to know about the fbi is on your podcast right. for sure and of those maybe three i actually had the video on mm -hmm. because i really felt from the very beginning that if this is going to be a presentation and i'm asking these people to provide all of this information. Remember my podcast, I probably don't have one episode that is less than an hour. Yeah, so they're long. Hour yeah. to hour and a half. Well, I can't expect my guests to be able to remember all of that. Mm -hmm. And so I let them know from the very beginning, bring your notes, bring you know everything that you need and put it out in front of you. I, I think as uh, when it's a video, 
and um, you're doing that, it's hard because they want to look down, they want to look up, they want to, you know, move this paper and shift that. And I don't know what made me realize this, but from the very beginning, I thought, no, if I'm going to ask them to really do this, I want them to know that they can move papers around, they could look down, they could pull something from there because no one's gonna see that. They're just gonna be hearing what they have to say. Uh And uh, I think that ended up being something that allowed them to be more intimate, you know? Oh, okay, okay. Because they're not worried about looking at me and how they're gonna look. They can kind of, you know, get back in their seat and just kind of talk and look at their stuff and just kind of remember, you know, what was going on and how they felt at the time. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about episodes that really stick out, all of them do, and I'm not just saying that, but there was one I interviewed, oh, and I'm gonna forget his name. After 231, it's kind of hard. Yeah, right? yeah. We, I interviewed the case agent, and his name's gonna come back to me, um, of the, Poly class abduction case. Oh. And, you know, for everyone, that was the 12 year old girl who was stolen, who was kidnapped from her bedroom, you know, with her mother home and two friends over her house for a sleepover. And somebody came in and kidnapped her, abducted her. And it was the case agent of that case. Uh, we talked for maybe four or five hours as he went through the entire investigation at sometimes breaking down, you know, Mm -hmm. when he talked about how it meant so much to to him to try to get to her before something happened to her and how he had uh, basically a breakdown where he lost control. He was shivering. He was, you know, when, by the time they found him, you know, he had to be hospitalized um, I don't remember for how long, a day or two, uh, because his body just, he had taxed his body so much and uh, trying to investigate this case. And, you know, as he's reliving this and I could hear him crying and I cut some of that out, you know, you can't, <laughs> you know, I leave a little bit in there so you know that he's crying, but I don't, you know, I don't leave all the, you know, the sobs and stuff in, in, in the audio, but that's when I realized this is more than just, as a friend of mine would say, a fancy book report. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the case agents who are reliving the moment and really sharing with me and the listeners, you know, what it was like to investigate their cases. And uh, I'm just so proud of, I mean, I know it sounds kind of conceited. I'm patting myself on the back. Well, you should. It's, a fan- <laughs> it's really fantastic. It. it really yeah, is. It's, really it's, it's it. that rare info that doesn't come out all that much, right? And it's not sensationalized and it's just straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So yeah. Um, and I think I'm able to, what I try to do is because some of the cases, you know, are cases that are very famous that, you know, have been on everybody's podcast. And I try to bring in the fact that I am a retired FBI agent and to, to go places that other interviewers may not even know where to go, you know, know, talking about what management was doing at the time, what kind of, you know, feedback or setback was occurring during it. And 
and uh, you know some of the people, of course, I know personally. And, yeah, oh, you sure. know, I know, I know the inside story. I know the behind the scenes story <laughs> too, so I could bring that up. Uh-huh. Uh, I know I, I recently did an interview with Jack Garcia, who was a lot of people know Donnie Brasco, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Pistone. Uh, because of the movie. Well, Jack Garcia needs to get a movie too. He was on 60 Minutes and he has a movie deal. It just hasn't happened yet. But uh, I interviewed him and he's been on everybody's podcast. He was on, uh, you know, uh, but nobody, and one of the things about him is during his FBI career, he ended up weighing around 400 pounds. And so of course, as an undercover agent, nobody suspected that he was an agent because of his weight. Oh, really? But, yeah, but nobody, you know, asked him about his weight because, you know, it's a sensitive topic. Oh, yeah. But I know Jack Garcia. You know, uh-huh. He came to my wedding. Oh. <laughs> he came to my wedding, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I didn't ambush him. I asked him ahead of time, you know, if we could talk about it and mm-hmm. what was going on and what that meant, you know, and, and the pressure that he was getting from management, he's out there doing all of this fantastic work, you know, risking his life. But when he gets back to the office, you know, they're they're giving him censure letters and you know, yelling at him because he you know weighs too much. And so uh, we talked about that. So that's just an example of what I, you know, hopefully can bring different to, uh, you know, a story that somebody has heard about. And then I also get stories and get people to talk about stories that no one's ever heard about yeah yeah well those those can be just as interesting because if everybody knows it's they kind of tune out a little bit you know but it's the it's the ones that you don't hear about that there's so many of that are so fascinating so Mm -hmm. okay so that's uh retired fbi case file review and you're on the other way around oh shoot i got it wrong sorry (laughs) fbi retired case file review i have that written down right here i don't know why i said it wrong so so and that's all anywhere you get your podcast anywhere you listen to audio and where can people get your books yes uh, of course, they can get them anywhere you buy books. I mean, they're they're everywhere, and they're available as ebooks, uh, print books, and audiobooks. Oh, oh, cool! Oh, yes, all of my books are available as audiobooks too. So, uh, again, I have two crime novels, "Pay to Play" and "Greedy Giver," and they feature my flawed female FBI agent uh, protagonist, uh, Carrie Wheeler, uh-huh. and they're all about frauds. So pay to play our corruption, pay to play and greedy giver. And I'm working on the new one now, which is uh, spoiled sport. Uh, then of course you have my nonfiction, FBI myths and misconceptions. And I have this fun, 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 fun book that I did with my son, who's now 30, 31. We did that a couple of years ago. And it's the FBI word search book. Oh, so what's yeah. that all about? Yeah, it was, it's about the FBI. It's uh-huh. called FBI Word Search, fun for armchair detectives. And it is not your grandmother's word search book, although I always say she would love it too. It is, it is packed with FBI terms and, and terminology, advanced themes. Like I might have one on transnational gangs. Uh, you're oh. searching for the words of, uh, you know, like the Bloods or MS-13. Uh-huh. You know, I, I have one on frauds, economic crime, corruption. And so 
I love that book and I'm just trying to get more people to, to know about it because it's, it's just fun. And of course it also, the proceeds go towards my granddaughter's college fund. So. Oh, well, yeah, we need that. Cause that college is no joke these days. No, <laughs> How expensive no, it is. So I love for people to visit me on my website, which is jerrywilliams.com. And you can learn more about my books and my blog, which is about the FBI and books, TV and movies. And of course, my podcast interviews, FBI Retired Case File Review. Oh, I love it. Okay, so if you could leave people with one tip so that they don't become a victim of fraud, because you've seen thousands of frauds by now, what is the one tip? You know, it's, it's the tried and true one that we've always heard about. If it looks too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> there you go. Easy enough. Straight from the FBI. You heard it here first, people. All right. Jerry, thank you so much for coming on Fraud Busting. Thank you for having me. This was fun. It went by so quickly. Are we done already? We're done. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.